0: Later on this episode, the, the end point is not enough. You have to enjoy the journey. You have to be passionate about what you're doing. otherwise it's an impossible uh, set of obstacles that you have to get through. You really have to uh, you know love what you know what you're immersing yourself in.
1: Uh, folks, I'm extremely excited uh, about our guests today. We have Dr. Stephen Kalkanis, by trade neurosurgeon. Uh, out of Harvard. Uh, today, he serves as the chief executive officer for the Henry Ford Medical Group. And for folks who aren't aware, the medical group and the health system, they're really two different enterprises. Uh, and Dr. Calcanis leads r- approximately 2,000 physicians and researchers within the medical group. But look, this man has a ton of capacity. And let me just share a few of the other things that he does as well. Dr. Calcanis also serves as the chief academic officer at Henry Ford. He is the chair and senior vice president for Henry Ford Health System. And most recently, Dr. Kalkanis, you have been appointed as the associate dean for Michigan State's new initiative and department, correct? And can you tell us a little bit about that? We are very excited
0: about our Michigan State relationship. We will hopefully soon have a branch campus, our own Healthcare and, and Health Professional Campus Medical School at Henry Ford in Detroit, thanks to Michigan State. And uh, we're, we're Spartans now, so it's, uh, it's been a great journey.
1: Yeah, that's right. Go green, go white. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. We always chuckle that my son's first experience with politics was in second grade at Way Elementary. And so our family had recently moved in from the Chicago area to, to the great state of Michigan, and we land in a wonderful neighborhood, and, and our son Atlas, who at that time I think was seven, uh, is in second grade at Way Elementary, and he has this incredible classmate, and her name's Grace. And, and one of the, the marquee activities and events of the year was voting for mayor of the class. <laughs> And I just vividly recall my son being so excited. He comes home, he says, Dad, I'm gonna run for mayor of the class. I've got a campaign. I've got a, a couple guys in my corner. He's like, I need to come up with the slogan. and I've got to say like a 30 or 60 second speech. We literally worked on that for days. And he was so excited. And Samantha and I are like, you could do it, buddy. You know, just be yourself. Just be the best version of yourself. Be kind and respectful to everybody and great things will happen. Well, the election comes and goes. And the day of that, the election votes and the uh, the the winner became public. He came home and he said, "Dad, I lost. I did not win." And I said, "Oh, that's all right, buddy. Did you do your best?" Of course. I said, "Hey, who won?" And he said, "A girl by the name of Grace Calcanis." <laughs> And Dr. Calcanis and I met shortly after that at a wonderful event to benefit Henry Ford. And uh, and that story has just always stood out in my mind as to how we've uh, built our relationship.
0: And I don't think we've uh, <laughs> heard or seen the last of uh, Grace and Atlas and their saga. They uh, they remain uh, uh, great friends in class. But that that is awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Five years later, they're classmates again, right? Exactly. Yeah, so that's wonderful. I'm glad you're here. You know, typically, as, as you know, these conversations are around you know the things that are most important to you that you're passionate about your upbringing lessons uh, wins and losses but we always start with asking four simple questions first one what is your favorite color
0: my favorite color is red (laughs) awesome it's uh, it's uh, for me it evokes uh, passion and life and just uh, you know forward momentum I've always been drawn to it don't know why but uh, red is my color so
1: great favorite childhood superhero Favorite childhood superhero? Uh, probably
0: Superman. I was just sort of uh, uh, taken with the whole series and, and the saga and just being able to fly off and uh, do cool things.
1: <laughs> and, and Dr. Calcanus has a resemblance. <laughs> yeah. He has a resemblance. Uh, you're, you're, you're kind. I
0: don't think so. But uh.
1: <laughs> um, uh, Favorite afternoon snack?
0: Uh, you know,. Uh, skittles is my my downfall so uh and and i'm I'm eyeing them in your office here but it's not the afternoon yet so uh, i'm good but uh
1: that's right that's great and last last one favorite musician or favorite song or record to listen to
0: you know, I've always loved you too, uh, Bono. Beautiful Day. Uh, you know the whole the whole thing. But uh, I like Journey. Uh, I have a pretty eclectic, wide taste in music. Some classical music, but those are those are some big ones.
1: So. Do do you and Laurel and the children play music in the home?
0: Uh, we do, uh, but we have. Uh, Crazy eclectic differences in <laughs> in in taste uh, Laurel is a country music fan. Uh, my kids are into rap and hip hop and everything in between so uh it's it's uh, it, it, the music gets played often in different rooms but sometimes together
1: <laughs> that's great and between Nicholas Connor and Grace, which one controls the selection the most uh definitely grace, our youngest <laughs> <laughs> great awesome um so. There's been so much in the five years that I've known you, there's been so much that I think has occurred in your personal and professional life, the evolution of your career, many pivots, many achievements, awards. You know, I don't know if you would call them promotions. I think they're earned opportunities for you to serve and lead larger groups of people. When you look back at your career since leaving Harvard, what would you say is the one that stands out the most and why?
0: You know, that's a, uh, that's, that's a great question. Thank you. It's uh it's, it's been an honor. It's been a journey. I think all of us for the last five years, the last two years have been a, a crazy tumultuous time, but you know, I'm a neurosurgeon by training. I, I, I Put in a lot of years, you know, four years of college, four years of med school, seven years of, of residency, um, to be a brain tumor specialist, and and I think that um, for me the the most um, endearing and and probably the thing that I'm most proud of is being able to to move the needle in that space and to help develop new new treatments uh, for, for brain tumors is head of our national organization, the Congress of Neurological Surgeons had a chance to be part of the White House Moonshot for, for cancer. And also this concept of precision medicine, you know, how can we take the same people coming into the same doctor's appointment with the similar scan, similar diagnosis, but we know they're going to respond differently. We have unlocked the tools to figure out who might respond to one drug or one treatment and who might. And if you know ahead of time that you're not going to respond, let's get that person on a different therapy to give them, you know, a better chance at survival. Mm. So being able to, to contribute meaningfully uh, to that journey at this moment, when we have so many space age technology, uh, opportunities that now that we didn't have before to, to unlock those molecular and genetic secrets. I'm, 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 I'm very proud of that, but at the same time, uh, there were opportunities to, to help lead and move organizations forward. So I, I just feel very blessed to have been, you know, at, at, at the right time and place during that, that, that arc of history and in, in neuroscience and in cancer and, and then, you know, locally at Henry Ford.
1: You know, I, uh, as soon as I heard you begin to respond to that, I immediately thought about how different um, how different your decision-making process must have been when you decided to go into this field to think 15 years of education <laughs> before you were able to truly live your passion and your purpose on a daily basis all day, every day. And we're in a society so focused on immediate gratification today and everybody wants to be a business owner and a CEO at 18. You know, when do you think, when do you think you had the clarity that you, that this was your life's path and passion? Yeah,
0: it's, it, you know, when you say 15 years, it would scare anybody off at the outset. And luckily for me, it sort of creeps up on you because you go into it thinking, okay, I'm going to go to college. And for me, I knew I wanted to be a doctor from a young age, but it was a, it was an esoteric, vague concept. Actually in college, I, I majored in government and political science and mm. had lots of other interests, knew I wanted to go to med school. And so did all of those prerequisite courses, but I wasn't thinking, okay, there's a 15 year block of time ahead of me. And then, you know, did four years of college and, and, and then got into medical school and and you know, everyone, most people uh, you know think about graduate school as part of their of as part of their journey and so I thought, okay, that, that's another four years. And it was really only until I got into medical school that I thought, wait a minute, I'm getting really excited at at this concept of maybe unlocking the secrets of the brain and getting getting interested in neuroscience and neurosurgery in particular. I remember as as a young first year medical student, I shadowed a surgeon who took me into a case of a young a young woman, she was in her early 20s and was literally going blind over a period of, of uh, a couple of weeks, it came on suddenly because of an expanding tumor in, in the back part of her brain. And so I had the opportunity to see her in clinic beforehand, went into the operating room, saw this amazing uh, just window into what to me seemed like looking into someone 's soul at the time I mean it 's the mm. pulsating brain and the intricacies of what makes us uh human beings and and just sort of creatures that can feel and sense and do all of these amazing things and see the tumor removed and then a few weeks later, seeing her back in clinic when she's you know being able to read an eye chart again uh, that, wow. that that to me like that that was like wow, I've found what I wanted to do. And I wasn't thinking in that moment, okay, sure. that means another seven years. <laughs> I just knew that, okay, if I worked hard, I, I might be able to do something like that someday. And then you get to the end of it and then you say, wow, um, you know, I, I hope it was worth it. Because there's an opportunity cost, right? I mean, others are, of course. are going into business, they're, they're, of course. They're, they're starting companies, they're you know, going through their own path, which, which is great. But for me, you know, I, I tell my kids and tell everybody, my residents and those who I mentor that, you know, you, the, the end point is not enough. You have to enjoy the journey. You have to be passionate about what you're doing. Otherwise, it's an impossible uh, set of obstacles that you have to get through. You really have to, uh, you know, l- love what, you know, what you're immersing yourself in.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed when you when you just said that and you drew that analogy. I, I listened to a podcast recently um, uh, and, you know, I don't know how old or recent it is with Joe Rogan and his guest was speaking about, you know, the man who loves the walk hmm. uh, versus the man who is obsessed about the destination. Yeah. Yeah. The first will always. It's true. And I think that it's odd
0: because in neurosurgery and in many aspects of healthcare, you do have to keep your eye on the prize. You, you, we are very goal-oriented. You know, at the end of the case, you know, the, the goal is to help the patient or to take out the, the, the lesion or to get to the other side. But But that journey is so important otherwise the, the the end won't be as as great as you as you expect so you know i, I the, the, to me that's the most important lesson for kids coming in uh, saying that they want a shadow or are thinking about medicine or they want sure. you know an internship type of experience and when they get into residency same thing i mean those seven years in residency are formative years. For anybody, but especially on a pathway to be uh, to be a neurosurgeon or to be any kind of physician you, those are the years where you learn the most you, you make your 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 connections you develop a rubric in your mind for how you 're going to handle problems and, and it 's so critically important that you have to love doing it because otherwise uh, it 's an impossibly long time to just put your head down and think okay I'm almost to the other side. You you the, the, the I still draw upon my experiences in residency today when I make, you know, daily decisions. So it's it's something that um really has to be taken very
1: seriously. What would you suggest aside from loving what you do and learning to, you know, really enjoy the process and the journey when when young physician aspirants listen to this conversation, what would be two or three other things that you might recommend or, or suggest that they really pay attention to as they make these decisions? The first and
0: most important, and this is specifically for physicians, uh, there's so many aspects that uh, excite people about healthcare. There's uh, new technology. There's the concept of innovation and discovery. There's using uh, biomedical engineering to develop new tools. There's the, 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 the pharmacology of, of new drug development. There's you know leading health systems and divining, you know designing health policies, public health. All amazing, important things in our profession. But at the end of the day, you have to be sure that you are going into medicine for the most important reason, which is to help people. You mm-hmm. have to have a passion for the patient. You have to have a passion for uh, putting yourself not ahead of anyone or anything, but but this concept of, of servant leadership and going into – I mean, in, in your business, I mean, you've seen there, there are many other and perhaps – easier ways to, to earn a great living. And, and so medicine is a thankfully secure and, and noble profession for many aspects. But at the end of the day, um, the most successful physicians are the ones who who do it for what I think is the most important reason, and that's to make a difference for for people. All of those other aspects are critical components of being able to be successful and to make a difference. But, you know, when, when I interview, uh, you know, young aspiring doctors for positions in our residency program or to hire them on as faculty, you know, I'm, I'm looking for what drives them in their core. And, and, and that to me should be a focus on, on, uh, you know, making life better (coughs) for, for people. So that, that, that to me is the number one thing
1: as, as they, so let's assume that we have a young physician aspirant. They they love what they do. They're committed to the process and the journey. Their, their passion and purpose is truly to add value to people and to enrich their lives through assisting them with their health. Um, who who are the people that you believe an individual like that needs to have in their corner along their, the way to get through such a Long journey in comparison to what, you know, an undergraduate education typically requires, right? Four years. Yeah. it's a long list of
0: of people, and it's it, and it's a journey. And I, and I tell people that whatever success I, I may or may not have achieved, uh, I could not have done it without mentors. Mentorship is the most important thing, and mentors take many forms. I mean, I I've been blessed in my life to come from a very close knit family. My my father passed away from cancer when I was just fourteen, so that was you know a big blow uh, to to me personally and to my family. But my mom sacrificed everything to make sure that. Um, You know, I I had a world and a safety net around me that that, that I could thrive in. I'm I'm blessed with uh, an incredibly supportive wife that uh, also has um, sacrificed a lot for our family so that, you know, we can uh, you know, do the things that we want to do, but, but professionally along the way, at every stage, there was somebody either that I sought out or, or somehow we were, we were matched. And, and, you know, in, in college, uh, there were, there were people who guided me on the path toward, here's what you need to do to, to be successful in an application to medical school In medical school. I had many shadowing opportunities and, um, you know, those, to this day, you know, twenty, twenty-five years later, are still amazing mentors for me. And uh, at Henry Ford, same thing. There are always people ahead of you in in life and on the path that you think you might be on or want to be on. That if if you look closely, you can learned so many things. And and mentorship's a two-way streak. It's not a mentee just passively, you know, <laughs> gaining receiving <laughs> receiving right. you know wisdom. It's 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 that, that that interaction that to me has been so rich. I, I learned so much from those who I mentor today and I hope that, you know, in my seeking out people that I, I've shown my, my respect and honor to them and asking for their opinions, but but also uh challenging and pushing back and asking you know pointed questions about why did you do it this way or or did you think about any other options at the time so that it, it it would make more sense for me as I went along my journey but but honestly in medicine I think in any field mentorship matters it is critically critically important
1: so I I've, I've definitely seen that and, and and as you know we we have a few mutual friends and people who've worked uh, with you on your teams who who I've become, you know, uh friendly with or acquaintances and and I've learned quite a bit about Henry Ford's culture uh through yourself and others and Mr. Lassiter and and I hear mentorship a lot. Is that a part of Henry Ford's value proposition in attracting some of the top talent? It is
0: Absolutely, in our DNA, it's in the fabric of who we are. I think that, you know, at Henry Ford Health, um, our new uh, our new mantra to the world is being able to make the impossible possible. Not mm-hmm. a guarantee, but but being a a fierce advocate for, you know, creating opportunities for patients that they might not otherwise have. And so this concept of I am Henry is, is meant to be a, a, a tapestry upon which the rich diversity of our uh, team can, can serve that, that goal for, for our community and for, for the country, really. And you only do that through mentorship, through making connections of you know, within departments, you know, newer you know, recruits who are younger in their career and, and senior people. And we actively pair people up so that uh, those relationships can, can happen.
1: So. That's great how how um <clears throat> what are maybe a few of the other um, key themes in the value proposition for attracting talent to move to the state of Michigan from other parts of the country? you know when I first came here in two thousand four finishing residency um,
0: it was a hard sell for me personally and for recruiting those after me because there was this whole detroit question i mean you know i spent (laughs) 15 years in boston you know gleaming city on a hill like why in the world and you know yes i grew up here but it wasn't a given that 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 we would return quite Mm -hmm. frankly and uh we were just talking about mentorship it was because of a mentor mark rosenblum at the time who you know, reached out and and I saw a future through his leadership and mentorship that, that that I could build here. And and you know, I've never looked back. But today, it's so much easier because Detroit is just in the process of again transforming itself. And there was a pause through COVID, but I'm just seeing so many exciting uh, you know forward momentum opportunities here where recruiting is easier. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing. The second thing is that. In medicine, in particular, but I think really in any profession, people joining an organization and coming from a difference, coming from a distance, want to make a difference, and they want to be part of something that's larger than themselves. So um, Henry Ford's commitment to not just one patient at a time, or yes, you have a job and you're going to be seeing you know so many patients in clinic, and here's where you're going to be operating and so forth. If you're a surgeon, um, they. Now are offered the ability to outreach into our communities, to be a faculty member at at a world renowned place like Michigan State, to have research opportunities Mm -hmm. that may not have been possible at at other places, and also to really have a national platform, uh, because I think More and more, what we do here in Detroit and what we do at Henry Ford is an example for the country. In healthcare, you know, you have world-renowned places that all of us know, like the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic, and they are phenomenal. But they really focus on only the aspect of that spectrum where people are going for their fifth and sixth opinions and they're flying Mm. in and out. Mm -hmm. They don't also have a commitment to the Communities. I shouldn't say they don't have a commitment, but they don't have as large of a patient population that is local, that is invested in, in, in health equity and improving the lives of those mm-hmm. around them. And I think at Henry Ford, we are... Mastering both ends of the spectrum. We have mm-hmm. people flying in from all over the world for advanced clinical trials and advanced precision medicine treatments, but we're also tracking very closely our our rates of disease and illness and trying to combat social determinants of health within Detroit and making Michigan, you know, a healthier place. So mm-hmm. I think that I'm hoping will be a great attraction for for young uh, physicians who really want to be at a place with that commitment and, and you know, mm-hmm. essentially to make a difference.
1: Can we... Uh, uh, can we invest a few minutes t- speaking about detroit specifically sure, sure you know one one of the things that samantha and i um observed as we moved here from chicago which many people would ask us oh why would you go to detroit i'm yeah. like look it's just a little chicago yeah. <laughs> it's it's it seriously is is very similar the neighborhoods the the the, yeah. the diversity and ethnic groups and culture just so so similar um i would say detroit uh having all the stadiums and arenas uh, within blocks of each other makes it really special if you enjoy watching sports and competition Um, food scarcity though you know when we moved here we quickly realized there's not just an overwhelming focus and need to address nutrition for children but I'm guessing that, that you know nutrition you know dictates the quality of their sleep that which dictates their ability to learn at their highest level which dictates their ability and desire to maybe do extracurricular activities like sports or science camps or other things you know i just find in my very limited education around health that you know food matters and the access to the right food or slightly better food is that is that a conversation within Henry Ford whether it's the hospital system or the medical group you know can you speak a little bit to where that conversation that need is within the organization or its philanthropic interests yeah
0: it is an incredibly sobering and and critical point not only food scarcity but this this concept of social determinants of health and how from a young age <laughs> small tweaks in the human condition that many of us take for granted, a good night's sleep or you know, a, a, a proper dinner the night before or having parents at home in the morning to get people up for school, uh, for kids up for school, that matters in terms of the rates of asthma, the, the rates of just paying attention in school, early dropout rates, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. And then if you take that cohort of individuals and fast forward 10, 20, and 30 years, their life expectancy is set shockingly in this great country of ours in 2022 still is a plague right in our own neighborhood. So it is something that we feel passionately about. Um, this concept of health equity and our commitment to Detroit hmm. is what Henry Ford, I think that that's really the tip of the spear in terms of our value proposition to the city. And a lot of us have alf- often said that there's no great American city that really can thrive without a world-class health system and you know we at Henry Ford aspire to be that not just for Detroit but for the region and as part of that commitment we have to make a difference in social determinants of health and I'll tell you uh, uh, this hit home not just at the hospital but in my own family during COVID uh, my boys who are uh, my oldest is a senior my my mm-hmm. uh, youngest son is a sophomore now but this was a couple of years ago at the outset of covid they were watching the news and they were truly dumbfounded and shocked that there were food lines and soup kitchens of people you know during the pandemic that really it just made everything more stark, and and had you know mm-hmm. no access to food, and so uh, they took it upon themselves to start a charity. They sold masks, masks for meals, and they, I'm, I'm so proud of them. It's a plug for them that they raised you know fifteen twenty thousand dollars to mm-hmm. to give to the food effort in the city. But my point is, it happens, literally. A couple miles away from where mm-hmm. uh, where we were living, it's not just in areas that that you might think of as as historically underserved or or you know you might see some blight in, in, in communities. It, it is a real problem, and so. Henry Ford Health, wherever, you know, people see our blue sign should serve, I hope is is a beacon for that commitment as well. And so nutrition, uh, but also uh, good health habits and and exercise and access to, to healthy living situations. That makes it better for all of us because there'll be less of a demand on mm-hmm. the healthcare system for basic needs. And, you know, we can focus on, you know, the aspirational aspects and not having to play catch up because of, you know, the scourge of, of diabetes, obesity, hypertension, you know, asthma, mm-hmm. th- things like that. So.
1: How, how can other, um, you know, corporate social responsibility has been such a hot topic for, yes. I mean, almost my entire professional career of twenty years. You know, we've been talking about CSR since since two thousand when I got out of undergrad at the various organizations I've been a part of. Um, how can other corporate neighbors partner with such an enterprise like Henry Ford? I mean, I just think about it between the medical group and the health system. I mean, we're we're speaking about over thirty thousand employees. Is that correct? We have thirty three thousand employees
0: that touch two point five million patient visits, individual unique patient visits every year. So this is a significant footprint
1: incredible. How, how can other corporate neighbors, who do they reach out to at Henry Ford to just have a conversation about all of the different priorities and initiatives that you're really pouring into, like a fountain, to maybe be a part of something And in, in the, through the aggregation, you know, you can create, create this multiplication benefit.
0: Uh, thank you for asking. Thanks for the opportunity. They can call me directly, <laughs> but uh, I, I would love to talk to them. But we have, uh, for instance, in our cancer enterprise, something called Game on Cancer. And it's really, man, I'm looking at the awesome footballs yes. and, and sports memorabilia in this incredible office, but it's this concept of, you know, game on cancer that we're here to fight and we're here to win. And we have relationships with many of our sports teams around the city, but with game on cancer in particular, we have a corporate outreach where uh, companies from around the city and state can contribute to anything that is, you know, in- their, their value proposition wheelhouse. So some companies help, you know, build uh, uh, ramps for wheelchairs for patients who, Hmm. you know, don't have that ability. Some buy groceries and, and, and pay uh, the electric bill for those who are undergoing chemotherapy and can't work because of the scourge of financial insecurity as also a byproduct of, of being sick. Others put it into, you know, seed money for research and, and so forth. I'll tell you one incredible partnership with, Uh, with some of our our business leaders has been uh, the advent of enhanced screening for cancer Mm. uh, in underserved populations. I mean, you know, we... We have found that in some populations, well, nationwide, if if you have a smoking history, for instance, or if you're around people who smoke, there's a one in 250 uh, person chance that if we do a screening test, we'll find an early lung cancer that could be curable if it's found. Mm -hmm. But in some populations who've been underserved and who haven't had regular checkups, that number goes to one in 50. So literally five times the risk and rate of cancer all of which is curable if we find it early, and so being able to uh, pay for portable machines that can be put on vans and and, and and buses to go into communities and do you know remote screening events and screening mm-hmm. fairs for health screening, everything from you know raising awareness to uh, you know, for, for colon cancer, for breast cancer, for lung cancer, for prostate cancer. These are these are things that truly can be cured with early detection, but, you know, it, it's not as simple as a healthcare system offering it, because that assumes that patients have to come to us. We want to be able to, you know, be a bridge to, to be more embedded into the community, and that's how corporate sponsors can, you know, do amazing things. And th- that's just with cancer. There's similar opportunities for, for other fields as well.
1: Great. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. You know, I wanted to make certain that we allotted a little bit of time to just pivot back to, uh, some of your childhood and where you've drawn some of, um, maybe just like where, where you drew some of the, the big thinking, uh, and the vision you've had for your life, some of the values that you've carried forward into business and your personal life in raising three children and the incredible family that you and Laurel have. Can you touch a little bit on uh, what some of those values were that you learned maybe from your parents or the environment you were in as a child and that you've carried forward into your personal life in the hospital? Yeah. So I, I come from
0: a, a big extended uh, Greek-American family. And <laughs> so there's there's uh, lots of noise and energy and, and. <laughs> you know, uh, lots of love in that, but, but family is very, very important. And as I said, you know, when I was young, I I lost my dad from cancer, but had the support of a lot of loved ones around me. Um, but you know, when, when I raise, uh, when, when my wife and I think today about how best to navigate these challenging times with raising our own three kids, I, we, we prioritize family time as much as possible. And, um, you know, it, it may sound like, like a silly thing, but um, dinner time is like a, a, a sacred time f- for us. So, you know, I may, you know, start rounds or meetings at 6 AM and I may have conference calls at 9 PM, or I might have to travel somewhere, but from, you know, six thirty to 9 PM ish, like that, that's a blocked out time with that no matter, you know, what we're doing, we, we try and as often as is physically possible to, to sit, around the table and just hear about each other's day and i think that when you you know spread that experience out over many years uh you 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 it matters and so i don't yes, have any uh, any you know real objective proof for that but but you know i hope that that our kids have, have benefited from it i know i have and you know we, we all work very hard but but vacation time is important too and so we we try and uh do that as often as possible and and coming out of this COVID storm, hopefully uh, all of us will be able to do a lot more, more of that. Yeah, I hope so.
1: I hope so as well. When you, um, I, I often wonder how someone who's devoted their entire life to medicine uh, navigates the transition into uh, becoming a chief executive officer for such a large business. And it's not because you don't pick up things along the way, but you are recognized as a very well-known, respected, and brilliant neurosurgeon. Now you're the chief executive officer over a few thousand physicians and researchers. I have to think that requires a different set of skills and (laughs) muscles. Talk to us about the transition that you've been through in the re- in in the last few years since you were appointed as chief executive so, officer it, of the medical group.
0: Well, first of all, it's kind of you to say, um, I tell this story that I, I signed on the dotted line and I started this new job on March 1st, 2020. And 13 <laughs> days later, uh, I think we all remember what happened. So yeah. uh, that was not in the fine print. And, and being in a war room for, for two years during COVID uh, was certainly a... a a crazy learning experience, but uh, you learn a lot about yourself, and you learn about a lot about your teams. And you know, I think that the lessons for me were just communication, communication, communication. Just being there, and and just reassuring people that that we will continue to to move forward. And I think those are some of the some of the traits that that. I learned and honed when I was chair of neurosurgery. I had the opportunity to start our cancer Institute and our cancer program right. a few years before, and so that was an interesting stepping stone for me, um, moving a little bit out of my comfort zone sphere in the neurosurgery world and, and building something a little bit bigger and, and I, I became um, really uh, I guess excited about the future, thinking that you know I, you know if you put the right people together and, and have the right ideas you and have the right plan which is important you can instead of helping one patient at a time with each surgery which to me is still I still enjoy doing and and, and it still is so core to who I am but to to help larger groups of people and to make a difference in Mm -hmm. a community that that opened up a whole new world I think for leadership opportunities and for thinking you know how I wanted to spend you know the next part of my career so you know seeing some of the success of the cancer uh Journey and you know building this this pavilion now that we have on Grand Boulevard, uh, that that then led into an opportunity where again mentors mentorship mm-hmm. matters. Uh, someone tapping me on the shoulder and saying, "Hey, you know you should really think about this," and mm-hmm. and uh, took a hard look at, at, at the pros and cons because there are always pros and cons in any decision that you make like this. But um, yes, I miss being you know, in neurosurgery more frequently. Uh, and certainly uh, COVID has, you know, <laughs> I, I had a perfect plan laid out on March 1st about how I would, you know, have my <laughs> OR day and my clinic day and I would, you know, uh, run the medical group uh, at, at all these other times and, and all of that went to the wayside. But but coming out now and, and, and on the other side of this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm eager to kind of get back to uh, doing a little bit of both.
1: So. What, what is one of the simplest uh, things that you miss about being in surgery on a consistent basis besides the impact right of what you do to help people but what's just a simple thing that you're like I miss that yeah. uh, two things um
0: one and, and thankfully I still get this because I still am able to operate but that that moment when you walk out of the operating room and you're able to sit down with the family and look in their eyes and say, you know what, we, we, we got it. We were able to, you know, you know, bring (laughs) this patient through successfully and to see, to see the relief on their faces and to know, and you know, of course, not everything always goes well, or certainly in, in, in brain cancer doesn't always have a great outcome. But for me, it's being able to, to give hope because I am buoyed and inspired by that. So I I, I miss that doing I miss doing that more often. Uh, uh, you know, compared to you know when I was operating all the time. Uh, The second thing is when you're in the operating room, uh, there is a peace. There is a serenity. There is this concept that, you know, you're in the operating room, so the world kind of fades away and there's, there's no, you know, 20 million zoom meetings and calls and texts and, you know, you you are singularly focused on the most important task at hand, which is, you know, the patient on the operating room table and, uh, you know, in, in the roles that all of us have in the day to day craziness of, you know, Endless sort of responsibilities
1: that it, it uh, I, 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 I miss uh, that
0: aspect of it. So, it,
1: you, uh, you reminded me of how extremely OCD I am before I sit down with a client to discuss like a financial plan. <laughs> yes. Is there something? that you were obsessive about that you did every time before going into surgery that you can share? Oh, by definition,
0: neurosurgery is, I mean, OCD is normal in neurosurgery. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole checklist. I mean, yeah. I just, the rubric of going over every last imaging study and looking at every angle and the, the 3D models of, you know, for me and brain tumors and, you know, how close was it to a vessel in the critical portion of the brain and then even the setup, the how the patient is placed <clears> on <throat> the operating table, you know, when anesthesia is first being delivered, making sure that you're there to you know, look at all of the numbers and 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 the vital signs to make sure that it's safe to proceed. I mean, at every step, and it doesn't end until the surgery's done. There's just a running checklist of every le- so so. Yeah, OCD doesn't phase me as a neurosurgeon. That's yes, it's, uh, you know, it's part, part of what We do, yeah. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, Good. In anyone. <laughs>
1: um, so you referenced servant leadership, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't forget to come back to this. So. Um, I, I think Simon Sinek is is one of the uh, the greatest thought leaders on the planet right now, mm-hmm. uh, speaking on servant leadership, teaching and coaching organizations how to truly prioritize their people as their greatest asset, knowing that nothing great typically happens by the efforts of one person alone. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's collaboration, it's teamwork, it's it's um, creating an environment where people have a great vision and, and commitment to aspire to do better. Um, what are what are a few of the characteristics that you or Henry Ford looks for when they are saying, hey, it's time to promote someone into this new role that's going to have greater responsibility over people and Henry Ford's value proposition? What are the characteristics that you're looking for? I love
0: that you referenced Simon Sinek because he is a uh – I, I think a a role model for many and uh, I've had the opportunity uh to meet him and, and, and love his, his message. And I think that in medicine, as as we've been discussing, you have to put others first. That to me is the ultimate litmus test for if someone says they're passionate about medicine, the why? You know, being able to help people and so that embedded already is this concept of of, of servant leadership. But you know, when I'm looking to potentially, you know, when I'm interviewing or looking to, to promote someone, you know, you, you look upon the arc of their experience and did they always put themselves first or did they bring other people along? And and, and I think mm. that, you know, um, what, what I tell my chairs of our, you know, 18 to 20 departments now who are growing it's not about you anymore, you know, that your role as a chair, you will get all of the halo effect and the kudos of the successes from those in your department. So put your effort into mentoring those young faculty members Mm -hmm. who are trying to write their first grant or who are trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, build their, their patient base and, 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 their referral network or whatever it might be. Because at the end of the day, a collection of, of mentored superstars who are grateful for the opportunities that you've given them as a mentor, it just reflects back on you and, and, you know, exponentially. And so I think that, um, you know, most people, I think, uh, on our team get that. And it's something that I think we just constantly should should model, because to to me, that makes all the difference. Mm
1: Are there programs within Henry Ford that uh, reinforce some of these, you know, leadership traits or characteristics to, you know, like for a high potential group,
0: let's say? Yeah, it's a great question you're asking. One of the things I'm doing later this afternoon is sitting down with our executive team and uh, deciding upon, and this is. I dread it and I love it at the same time every year, but we have something called the physician leadership Institute. And so we've invested okay. for the last 15 years, you know, every department gets to nominate, you know, one person. And there's room for about, you know, nine or 10 across the system of, you know, sort of young to early mid career physicians who we feel have a lot of potential for leadership and for being mm-hmm. kind of the tip of the spear for our, for our, uh, health, uh, uh enterprise. And, um, it's so inspiring to see the journeys and the stories of these people, but there's always, you know, three to four times as many as we have spots for. So I, I dread it in the sense that, you know, how are we going to select from among, you know, this great group? But yet, you know, it, it gives me hope that our, our bench is deep and that there's interest and, you know, it, it's a, it's an annual thing. So, you know, hopefully there'll be enough time and opportunity for, for you know, to get all of our, our our young superstars through. But we do, we, we, we really... Uh, understand the importance of creating these protected time opportunities for for leadership because Mm -hmm. some leadership is innate but there are some skills that uh i think you need to be exposed to and you know in, in our world uh you know having you know people in your world and with financial expertise embedded into medicine and and sort of change management skills and and how to deal have had have difficult conversations mm-hmm. with peers and and you know understanding and taking a national pulse and figuring out what our strengths are here in Detroit and Henry Ford and how to tap into that to create you know uh, the biggest bang type of mm-hmm. a thing these are these are all topics that I think uh, need you know can be delved deeper into uh you know mm-hmm. d- during specific training opportunities.
1: You know when we uh when we partnered uh with Henry Ford on the Game on can- uh, Game on Cancer a few years ago I was hearing a term that really struck a chord with me financial toxicity. Yes. Can you speak a little bit to that? So it is it is a heart-wrenching and
0: heartbreaking concept that imagine that you are diagnosed with cancer or a loved one is diagnosed with cancer. And that in and of itself is, is so much to deal with. And you're going to doctor and nursing visits. You might need surgery. You might need chemotherapy and radiation therapy, but all of these, when we started asking and figuring out they're actually making a decision between their copay on their, their chemotherapy prescription or their electric bill or their food bill or their Mm -hmm. grocery bill. Um, And you know, this concept of if they become immobilized and they need a wheelchair to go up into their, their house, you know, there, there, there's, there's no resources to build a ramp or to make modifications and so forth. So this, this concept of financial toxicity that you mentioned really is a, a a scourge among cancer patients and families that we also try and shine a light onto. So yes, we're handling all of the, the medical treatment side of it with precision medicine and targeted therapy. But at the same time, we also need as much support as possible so that um, people and families going through this journey uh, you know, don't have to make... Even more sacrifices uh, because of not being able to pay for for basic mm-hmm. things, and it's not as if um, you know th- th- these are people who've had jobs and who are have been hardworking and never missed a payment. But you mm-hmm. know, it, many families are one paycheck away from from not being able to pay their rent or for you know mm-hmm. ba- basic bills. And and cancer, unfortunately, uh, one of the many devastating aspects of it is. Uh, you know the potential to, to wreak havoc on on all aspects of of life. So mm-hmm. that's something that we we try and focus on to alleviate.
1: No, and I um, and I appreciate you expanding on that and sharing that with our listeners. I uh, was extremely impressed as I visited with a few different physicians on that topic. After I began to hear it spoken of often i was like well what is what exactly is that and to just know that uh henry ford as an institution as significant of an institution as it is not just in the midwest but serving patients across the country that that's a priority of theirs and that's a conversation at the table with the decision makers like yourself and mr lassiter and others yeah.
0: Well, Wright has been an amazing CEO, and uh, you mentioned Wright Lassiter, and I think that our commitment to this is that that's how we lead. that That, that is what we lead with mm-hmm. because we want to be the solution for mm-hmm. the entire person, the entire community, not just mm-hmm. when they happen to be, uh, you know, in their appointment dealing with the medical mm-hmm. issue. So uh, that's something that, that is critical, and, and you know— uh, Manny, I want to thank you for your support for Game On Cancer, and and you may not mm-hmm. know this, but when you stepped up and when mm-hmm. you know this this enterprise uh, donated, it it forced a lot of other people to say, well, you know, maybe I should do it too, and and, and it, mm-hmm. it it matters. I mean, it, it does thank create that. it does create a, a crowdsourcing sense of yeah. you know we can we can actually make make a difference. So so thank you.
1: Yeah, we I appreciate understand. that, and I, I I love it. R. J. King often speaks about you know the rising tide lifting all boats, and yes. you know we we. Try to do our best to do our part and be a part of the solution. You know, it's the aggregation of marginal gains, right? It's the aggregation of yes. marginal <laughs> gains. Um, you know, let you know we're getting ready to wrap up. You know, maybe thirty seconds on the vision of Henry Ford. As you look at the next ten years, are there specific things that are extremely high priority? Something that's unique, or just the vision in general of the organization?
0: Yeah, my thank you for asking. My, my moonshot to, to my team has been over the next decade. Uh, I want Henry. For to contribute 25 practice-changing innovations to healthcare across mm. the country. And um, I say this with uh, full confidence because what many people may not realize is that uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s, the New England Journal of Medicine, the most premier medical journal in the world, came up with its top 10 innovations in medicine uh, in the last century. And uh, most people don't realize that three of those ten came from Henry Ford, so you know it's in our DNA. The, this concept of how to treat stroke, of robotic surgery, of sepsis management—these are all Henry Ford contributions to the world. And, it, and it's time we uh, not only picked up where we left off, but to you know zoom into the future. So I uh, that that is definitely what what excites and, and inspires me.
1: So, well, I'll, I'll tell you as you said that one, I did not know that. Um, I'm not surprised I didn't know that though, actually. Uh, but you know we do believe that attention is today's greatest currency, and and when we have the right audiences, the correct audience's attention, it's important to, with with humility, be really proud of our story. Yes. right and and Henry Ford it's an incredible story it's a story that should be told it's a story that should be marketed and promoted with great pride not just internally within your culture but with your partners in the community and uh, I, I would say uh, this has definitely been one of the more enjoyable conversations I've had in a long time especially on the podcast I'm thankful that you were with us I know how busy you may be um, is there any last thought or comment that you'd want to share for our listeners before we go? Uh, just thank you. Thank you for anyone listening who supported
0: anyone in healthcare, anyone going through this crazy tsunami that we all weathered together during the last two years. Uh, I think we can declare that maybe it's not totally over. COVID is something that we'll probably have to live with at a chronic level, maybe uh, you know yearly vaccines and boosters and so forth, kind of like the flu. But um, it was not lost on anyone that we we weathered it because of the support of of the community. So, so thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you again for leading an organization. That's a leader in our community. Thank you. This has been awesome.